Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald, and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. For listeners who have been tuning in regularly, you've probably noticed I've got this little spiel off the top where I'm asking people to go over to YouTube. I have a channel over there, Life As A, dot, dot. And basically, it's just highlights from the main audio versions, from the podcast versions of these talks that I have with these great guests. And the reason I'm plugging it so hard is that I think this content really does matter. And I want to get it in front of people. I want to get in front of youth, people that are still undecided, who just don't know what they want to do with their lives. And I think this platform, you know, One YouTube, offers that opportunity kind of get up close and personal with some of these guests in a different format. And if you're just not into audio, if you're not into podcasting as a whole, that's fine. That's okay. Well, you can still digest the content in a different way. I would encourage you, if you do know somebody who's looking for that career, looking for some ideas, direct them over to lifeasa.dot over on YouTube. You know, if they're into videos, they might just find what they're looking for over there. And while you are there, hey, I would always appreciate a like or subscribe. It's the best way to let that algorithm know that the content matters, that it should be put in front of others. Well, I do thank you for letting me ask this of you, but I think it's about time we get into today's episode. If I were to ask you what one of the most intense professions out there could be, I'm guessing that the work of our guest today would rank highly. I mean, when the job responsibility entails making profound decisions in seconds that more times than not mean the difference between lives saved and lost, well, it'd be hard to match the extreme work of an emergency and critical care physician. Now, media depictions of this profession often highlight the stresses and pressures of the work and probably, in most cases, do a pretty good job. That said, there is so much more to the work that is not captured like the strange peacefulness that takes over when working in an ICU, or how the work rubs off on you as a critical care physician. Well, those hidden aspects of the work are a few things I'd like to introduce to you today by way of this incredibly insightful conversation I had with the highly accomplished and respected Dr. Blair Bigham, an emergency and critical care physician journalist who has been within this medical field for years, caring for others in the back of ambulances, helicopters, and of course, ICUs. We're going to jump into it all from the demands of his work, to a day in the life, to a lot more. So let me more formally introduce him to you, and we can get started. Dr. Blair Bigham is a multimedia freelance journalist and emergency and critical care doctor based in Toronto, Canada. He received his journalism training at the Monk School of Global Affairs and his research training at the Institute for Medical Sciences, both at University of Toronto. And his medical training was at McMaster and Stanford Universities. Now, Dr. Bigham has delivered healthcare on five continents and transported patients on helicopters, boats, and vehicles that could generously be described as pickup trucks. And in the past, he worked as a paramedic, scientist, and educator, and frequently speaks at conferences around the globe. And he reports on social, political, and biological influences on health and wellness. His work has appeared in newspapers, magazines, newscasts, podcasts, and medical journals. 
And further, Dr. Bigham is co-host of the Canadian Medical Association Journal, CMAJ, podcast, and deputy editor at healthydebate.ca. So with all of this noted, here is my conversation with Dr. Blair Bigham. Yeah, so welcome to the program. How are you doing today, Dr. Bingham? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Really excited for this talk. And really quickly, too, I mean, would you like to be referred to as Dr. Bingham or shall we go with Blair? Oh, no, no, no. Please call me Blair. Okay. Well, like I said, I'm really excited for this. You know, your background kind of speaks to itself. I was lucky enough to, to hear a little bit about it on a Radio Lab episode that was blasted out to, to millions of other people that also heard you know, your story and, and what you're all about. So I'm eager to share, you know, some of that with listeners today. And with that in mind, I do have this first segment lined up. It's something called Coloring Wikipedia. As my listeners know, it's a segment where I just read off a definition of, you know, a term related to what the guest is all about. And surprise, surprise, I went with uh, intensive care medicine for you. So let me just read that off and uh, maybe you could share some comments after. Does it sound okay? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So here we go. Intensive care medicine. Intensive care medicine, also called critical care medicine, is a medical specialty that deals with seriously or critically ill patients who have, are at risk of, or are recovering from conditions that may be life-threatening. It includes providing life support, invasive monitoring techniques, resuscitation, and end-of-life care. Doctors in this specialty are often called intensive care physicians, critical care physicians, or intensivists. There it is. I mean, admittedly, this isn't shining any new light on what you do or, you know, your field, but I like it as a base of kind of, you know, a point at which we can kind of explore it further from somebody like yourself who's like sure. living and breathing all of this. So first off, what would you say to that definition? It's long. It is. And wordy. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's very wordy. I think I, I simplify my job by saying that I, I use technology to keep dying people alive in hopes that their bodies can regain function and we can shed the machines and they can get back to doing whatever it is that they love doing most. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think that should be an update on the Wikipedia side. <laughs> you can add that to the laundry list of all the other things that you're involved with. <laughs> is there anything you'd like to, to de-emphasize maybe within that definition? Sometimes there's points that, that come up that maybe aren't as, you know. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that in intensive care, we do a lot of recovering. I think we're basically waiting until you no longer need all of these amazing machines that we use to, to keep you alive, and then you go elsewhere to do your recovery. And so the, the recovery part, that's the really hard part. That's the part that takes a lot of attention, a lot of focus, a lot of energy from not only healthcare providers, but also patients and their families. It's the real hard part is to recover from critical illness. Because at the end of the day, when you're critically ill, your body becomes remarkably weak. And when technology is used to take over your organ functions, your organs kind of get used to that support. They get a little bit lazy and they need to rehab. Each organ needs to rehab and get back to where it's at. And so the rehab part really does come after the intensive care part. Intensive care is really about using technology to push people through their disease so that they can go and recover somewhere where they don't need technology just to to be alive. Yeah. And one thing I love in this definition is that it talks about end-of-life care. I think a lot of people maybe exclude that from the definition of intensive care medicine, where they think it's all about machines and keep going, keep going, keep them alive, keep them alive. But a very large part of intensive care is recognizing when you've been beat, when your machines aren't having their intended consequences, 
and when somebody's organs have failed to the point of not being able to recover. And at those junctures, we do bring in a, a palliative philosophy or an end-of-life philosophy and, and switch modes from resuscitate with all of our machines and devices and drugs to palliate, where we focus on comfort and dignity and, and remove the tubes and wires and lines that tether people to a hospital bed. Yeah, that's a really nice insight into it all, I think. For a lot of people, at least maybe even for myself too, like initially when you, you consider this, you're, you're thinking of moments immediately after some sort of potential tragedy where doctors are racing furiously to, to try to preserve life. But this whole other component that you were just speaking of, you know, certainly is part of it as well that, that, that might not cross a lot of people's minds when they're, you know, considering what it is all about. So yeah, I think that's a really helpful insight. And this also might be a nice time to, to learn a little bit more about you. I certainly listed off, you know, your background and, and what you're all about and some of your experiences off the top, but maybe it'd be, uh, it'd, it'd be nice to hear it from you in terms of some of your roles, responsibilities, what you're involved with beyond just working within hospitals. Yeah. So in addition to being an ICU and emergency doctor, I do a fair amount of science communication. I work as a journalist here in Toronto, uh, trying to bring complicated healthcare topics uh, to the public so that we can have more public discourse, more conversation about the challenges that face our healthcare system. And I work quite a bit in, in the education realm, sort of making sure that the skills that are needed to communicate effectively are, are broadly taught so that we have physicians and nurses and scientists who are gifted in communicating complexity so that there's less confusion because we know that it gets very confusing. We saw this during the pandemic, a lot of confusion, you know, should I get vaccinated? Should I use Paxlovid? Should I use certain other medications during my critical illness or my, my mild illness with COVID? A lot of people were very concerned, rightfully so, about how to stay healthy. And at times, the, the messaging around that was confusing. And I think we learned a lot about how to do a better job of that. And that's something that I'm very dedicated to. A couple of things strike me here, but like one of them is the fact that I think for a lot of people, at least the impression would be just working within an ICU, that unto itself would be enough in terms of stress, responsibility, <laughs> and, and everything else associated with what that profession's all about. So in terms of the extracurriculars that you're involved with, I mean, that's, that's interesting unto itself. I mean, I've spoken to several different people on this program. And one of the things that comes up, a running theme is that all of these different hats that people are wearing add to levels of fulfillment for people. I'm guessing that's the driving force yeah. behind some of these other things that you're involved in. I think some of this is about anti-burnout. When during the pandemic, people would come up to you and say, oh, no, I don't want to be on a ventilator. If, if you put me on a ventilator, I'll die. I'd have to say, like, where, where'd you get that idea? That this ventilator is here to save your life. If, if you don't go on it, I know you're going to die. I had people in my ICU who refused to believe that they had COVID and, and it was very difficult to build a, a trusting relationship with patients and families when they don't even believe in the disease that they're suffering from. And so when you see these things clinically, it, it compels you in your off clinical time to, to chase them and to, and to see what you can do to create a world where people trust what their doctors are saying and and where their doctors are able to to listen to their fears and concerns and and values so that we do the right thing for each patient and their families it's an area of medicine that is as humanistic as it is scientific yeah i mean that period you know represents a lot obviously a lot of tragedy and whatnot too but you know outside of all of that the obvious 
It was an interesting time, I would assume, from a, from a layman's perspective of up until that point, it would seem to be that people did trust physicians, you know, that their word or their, their knowledge was sufficient and you just went along with it. But all of a sudden, it, it, you know, questioning, mm-hmm. questioning, it must well, have been such a difficult time for, you know, physicians like yourself to, to have to yeah. deal with that, to, to reorganize your ways of interacting and educating and communicating. We know that over the last decade or so, and, and maybe even a little bit before that, there have been declines in trust in, in institutions and in government and experts and science and medicine. But we saw that come to to bear great consequence with the, the COVID pandemic. I mean, it shut down our lives. It shut down society. It, it caused, where I live, thousands and thousands of deaths. In my ICU, I saw dozens of people die from COVID. And so... All the all the theory around this suddenly became very, very real, and it became an urgent problem that needed to be solved, as opposed to sort of this abstract problem that people knew about, but it didn't really seem to be that much of a problem. This might be a nice point to, uh, to kind of shift on over into a new segment here. I do have a day in the life segment, and, you know, as possible as this question might be, <laughs> still going to ask it anyway. You know, what, what would be a typical day for you? I mean, you're wearing several different hats, it would seem here, but uh, obviously your, your ICU work is probably going to take up a big chunk of this. But uh, yeah, I'd love to hear. Yeah. So where I work when I'm on service, I'm on service. I work from a Monday to a Sunday, usually with a colleague. We split the unit in two. So I'll show up sometime around seven o'clock in the morning. I'll round on my patients, meet with their families provide any procedures that need to be provided. Some people need various drains placed or various lines placed. And then I'll liaise with other specialists, surgeons, infectious disease experts, pathologists, whoever it is that I'm relying on to to make the best decisions. And then between me and my colleague, one of us has to be in-house 24-7, so we usually share the night. So every other night I stay in-house and provide care overnight. Usually there's a new admission or two. Uh, people coming in through the emergency department or being flown in for a surgical service or something like that who then need intensive care. So the ICU week itself is busy. It's probably 120 hours of work and it's pretty exhausting. And so the, the day after my week of service is sort of a day off. The day after that is usually a full day of what we call catch up. Um, when you're on service, you can't do much else. And so you got to get caught up on your life, whether that's laundry or emails or grocery shopping. And then I've got a couple of days left in the week that is usually consumed by my education and and scholarship work around advocacy. So it keeps us busy for sure. We tend to work every other week in the ICU, and that leaves every other week to do your uh, academic stuff. Yeah, it sounds like a lot, as I said earlier. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose you find a rhythm to it all, but initially, I mean... You do. There's something actually quite peaceful about just knowing that all you're going to do for a week is take care of patients. You don't need to answer your emails. No one expects you to because you're on service. You don't have to go to meetings because you're on service. If there's something actually, some, it sounds strange to say it's predictable. I don't know what clinical work I'll be doing. But just knowing that I'll be doing clinical work in an ICU. A purity to it, in a sense, right? There's something very soothing about it, actually. Just knowing, what are you doing this week? I'm I'm just taking care of people. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm just in the ICU, right? I'm hanging out with nurses and respiratory therapists and dietitians. And we're just going to do what we can to get people better. You know, it kind of strikes me as something that, like, why or the reasons why somebody would get into the field in the first place is, like, is that not, you know, people aren't getting into it for all the other paperwork and all the other things, right? Like. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah. You're you're doing what you were trained to do. You're doing what you love to do. And you know, there's not a lot of administration or politics during that time. You're really just there in service of people who are who are critically sick. And and it's quite a privilege to be able to do that. It's in your off week where things are more chaotic because you're running left and right, doing meetings after meeting or running to various hospitals for other type of project work or jumping on a Zoom to to talk to a, a podcast host. Um, those weeks feel far more chaotic sometimes than being in the ICU. The ICU work is chaotic. I mean, emergencies come up out of the blue and require some pretty quick, pretty quick decision making and, and pretty quick skill delivery. But you know, you're trained for that. And and there's something nice about just knowing that that's what you're going to be dedicated to for the whole week. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. All right, well, maybe we could skip on over to another segment here, a pathways. And this one is as it sounds, you know, the aim is to kind of uncover how people made their way into their work. And as I mentioned earlier, when I was listening to that radio lab episode, I was fortunate enough to hear a little bit about your background in terms of being a paramedic, at least initially, and then transitioning towards becoming a critical care physician. But maybe you could fill listeners in a little bit about that, you know, how you entered into to this whole world, essentially. Yeah, I, I started as a lifeguard. And I think every lifeguard sees an ambulance and goes, oh, my goodness, that's so cool. Because, you know, as a lifeguard, it's a lot of staring at at water, but not actually doing a whole lot. And so you're always kind of craving that action, that idea that you could help somebody. And, and paramedics seem to do that all day long. So I was drawn to paramedicine, became a paramedic, and uh, really enjoyed that work very much. And was privileged enough to have the opportunity to to switch from an ambulance to a helicopter and, and work in flight paramedicine, which is exciting and rewarding and challenging. And and during my time as a paramedic, I did some additional training, received my master's in medical science, and was working part-time as a as a researcher, looking at questions related to paramedics. We were looking at patients who suffer severe trauma or who suffer severe cardiac problems, who then required very specific choreographed care in order to survive. And it was great to be able to study how we can all do that better. And uh, after about a decade of that, I um, applied to medical school and was fortunate enough to get in and uh, assumed, as I think many paramedics do when they go to medical school, that I would be an emergency doctor, but very quickly fell in love with the ICU and now uh, am lucky enough to practice full-time in critical care in the city I was born in. During that time, when you were a you know, paramedic, I'm sure there are certain situations that you're involved in that that would, that would you know force you to to reexamine things and and think about how you know you want to fit into this world essentially and you know things maybe you agreed with things that you didn't necessarily agree with. Were there moments mm-hmm. there that kind of shifted you along? Yeah, there's this big street that cuts Toronto in half, north and south, and uh, I worked on the north side of it. And on the north side of it, paramedics used a particular drug. It was called lidocaine to treat a certain type of cardiac arrest called ventricular fibrillation. On the south side of the street, those paramedics were using another drug called amiodarone. And I was fixated on this. Like, why are we using two different drugs? Certainly one of them must be more effective than the other. And so seeing differences in practice led me to become a scientist. To ask the question, not is like who's right, who's wrong, but well, wait, can we show that one of these two drugs is superior so that everybody can benefit from it? I had many of those moments as a paramedic where I was just like, wait a minute, we can do better here. And eventually those those moments compelled me to, to move into medical school, uh, along with the 
what I think is a, a deficit for many paramedics in practice is that once we drop you off at the hospital, we really don't know what happened to you. We don't even know what your diagnosis was half the time. We only know what we were thinking your diagnosis is because we don't have CAT scans. We don't have MRI machines. We don't have blood tests. So we're kind of just going on our gut. And there's something dissatisfying about never really knowing if you were right. Whereas when you're in the ER and then the ICU, like you have that longitudinal care of somebody. And so you get to see a little bit more about, about the, the course of their illness. And that's something that I value very much as an ICU doctor. Oh, that's a really interesting distinction there. And it makes complete sense when you spell it out, but it's one that I don't think a lot of people would necessarily consider or, or pond over, you know, all that much. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think it, it eats away at paramedics. We all want to know, like, what happened? Like, did we do a good job? Exactly. Were we right? Like, and we, we almost never find out. And, and now as an intensivist, I, I kind of see, I get to research the entire course of someone's care from their field, you know, field care with the paramedics to the ER care, coming up the elevator, either to the operating room or the ICU, and then finally seeing their ICU trajectory. You got to get just a better sense of what's gone on to this body that's caused it to be so broken and and slowly seeing the gains that you can make through the marvels of modern medicine. Yeah, I thank you for sharing the, the distinctions between those two fields, because I think they're you know, enlightening to a lot of people, or will be at least for people that are maybe on the fence between the two, perhaps, or looking to transition. Okay, well, I do have this other segment here, Q&A Discovery, you can kind of continue this back and forth. And outside of some of the reasons that you just shared for getting into the field that you're within and critical care, becoming a critical care physician, you know, procedurally, the world that you're in would seem to be utterly different than any other form of medical care outside of what we were just speaking of. Ostensibly, it would also kind of require you to be maybe wired a little bit differently, psychologically speaking. I don't know. I don't know. Again, from somebody who's on the outside here, what what would you say to that? I mean, like the the stress, the pressure, like you said already, some of these quick decisions that need to be made. You know, what, what would you say to this? I think over my life, I've been exposed to escalating degrees of stress and responsibility. And so I've sort of proven that that's something that suits me. I kind of I thrive on it. I I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. When people are critically sick, I like the fact that I only have a few minutes to figure out what's wrong. I like that the blood work hasn't come back yet. I just kind of have to guess, right? Like there's something very... Sorry to yeah. interrupt. Is that something that you you would say you could grow into like if through experience? Or is that something that you kind of just have to be hardwired once you're entering into yeah. that world? I think becoming a doctor is such a long process that people have the opportunity to select specialties that suit their disposition. And so people who don't like working in a gray zone, who don't like uncertainty, or who don't like having to make really quick decisions are probably going to select something other than emergency medicine or critical care. And so really medicine offers something for everybody based on what you're interested in and just what your own personality can can tolerate or can value or can add to. I would make a terrible endocrinologist. Like I don't have three months to wait for anybody's blood sugar to improve. Like I'd get so bored. Oh my goodness. But it's important work. It's valued work. But for me, I, I like that instant gratification of having to really work in a gray zone where you don't have a lot of data, but you have to make a pretty quick and profound decision to move forward with the treatment plan before somebody dies. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges of your work outside of, you know, the obvious of what you're just kind of like laying out there, things that might surprise people in a sense? Mm. Things that might surprise people. I think the, the 
inability to know if someone's getting better or not is really hard. The human body can take weeks to recover, sometimes months. And so sometimes, you know, when you're on service for a week, that patient who you start with on a Monday, by Friday or Saturday, they might not look all that different. You're kind of like, geez, like, have I done anything for this person? <laughs> like, have I contributed to their recovery at all? And and sometimes it's really hard to be patient and just know that you're supporting that person's body while the body heals. That can be frustrating and sometimes confidence shattering. Like you feel like an imposter. You're like, I don't know, maybe I have this all wrong. Like maybe I'm missing something. And and sometimes we'll panic and you know, I'll come into work one day and be like, oh my, you know, it's day six. This person's no better. Uh, maybe I'm, I'll order a new battery of tests. I'll order a CAT scan of their whole body. I'll be like, okay, something, maybe I'm off here and I'll chase a whole bunch of new ideas. And often all that comes back negative and I'm left back with where I started. And, you know, three or four or five more days later, the person starts to turn around. But that can be, that can be difficult just to have the confidence to stay the course. Yeah. Yeah. And also knowing yourself too. I mean, you've kind of alluded to that already. Like you seem to be like somebody who wants to, to get onto things and move forward as quickly as possible. But sometimes time well, if, is just that something yeah, you just have if, to work if, with. Right. Yeah. If you have the right diagnosis on admission, you're probably going to do well. Right. Like we'll get you out of the ICU. And it's the people who maybe don't have the right diagnosis, who have a complication or who have this sort of unexpected course where, you know, they end up having more and more reasons to be in hospital. And as we always say, the longer you're in hospital, the less likely you are to leave it. So there is this sort of worry that that we didn't get it right the first time around. And so how do you know you got it right? Well, you see people get better right in front of you. And, and sometimes people do get better quite quickly. It's very rewarding. Other times it can take weeks and, and that can be a little bit more uh, nerve wracking. Yeah, I just have this idea or this this vision that certain professions give professionals different opportunities to kind of existentially, you know, ponder life and living issues. And, you know, at the top mm. of the list or absolute top of the list probably would be yours, you know, as a critical care physician. You know, I, I'd be curious to know about how often those types of thoughts enter your mind. And it, obviously with the patient, you're considering, you know, <laughs> saving yeah. this person. But even like bigger picture sort of looks at, at yeah. yourself maybe and, and everything else. Smaller picture wise, I mean, it's easy that the people who end up in the ICU almost never planned to be there. And normally you can trace their the reason for their illness all the way back to some political failing, a, a policy uh, or lack of policy in our society, a, a disadvantage that somebody had that led to a particular disease. I can think that that's true for people who get shot or stabbed, people who get certain types of cancers, people who have certain types of accidental trauma, people who have lung disease, heart disease, metabolic disease. Almost every disease can be traced back to some sort of social determinant of that disease. And so then you just feel like the ultimate band-aid applier, right? Like I'm just trying to 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 keep this person duct taped together. And I know that many of my patients will go out the door of the hospital, their life saved by the work done in the ICU and are at very high risk for continuing to decline and, and bouncing back. And we'll see them again in the ICU. And, and so that just makes you a lot more sympathetic 
to people's circumstances and and a lot more aware of the importance that we all play in our society of making sure no one's left behind. On a macro level, I mean, I see people die every time I go to work. I see people struggle with what it means to have a good death. I see people struggle with fighting to survive. I see families either come together or fall apart over those circumstances. And so that makes you think a lot about your own personal life, your own family, your own commitments, your own friends, and how you contribute not only to society at large, but also to the community that surrounds you and loves you. And that can be a blessing. (laughs) It can also cause you to lose a little bit of sleep. But what it does is it always strives you to live your very best life. Well, I think we have time to squeeze in one more question here. And this is in a different segment, a crystal ball segment. Normally, we're looking at trends, predictions, so on and so forth, relating to technology. And I understand that in late 2022, you wrote a book called Death Interrupted, How Modern Medicine is Complicating the Way We Die. And here you kind of outline some of the the virtues of technology, you know, but also how our use of it is kind of creating some, you know, moral, ethical, and even financial quandaries within the medical field. Maybe you could really quickly fill listeners in a little bit about, you know, some of your thoughts on on that space and or on that topic rather. Yeah. So I guess when I go to work, I use the term life support a lot. We talk about saving lives. And that's certainly why I do what I do and, and what I hope to accomplish every time a patient. Uh, ends up in front of me. But sometimes in our life-saving efforts, all we're doing is delaying death or interrupting the dying process. Sometimes I can win that battle. I can definitely turn people around, get them better, cure them of pneumonia or whatever it is that's brought them to the ICU, and then they go on to live their lives. But other times it becomes clear that no matter how much technology I throw at someone, how many drugs I pump into them, that their disease has me beat. Their disease is advanced. It represents the end of their life, and they are slowly dying. And then we have to sort of grapple with what we do with all of the technology and all of the machines and all of the promises that we've made to try to, to keep people alive and, and bring them back from the brink. And that's where we have less guidance and, and less comfort in knowing what to do. We can simplify it by talking about what mode I'm in. Am I in resuscitation mode where I'm trying to save your life? Or am I in palliation mode where I'm focused on palliative care and keeping you comfortable as death approaches? But knowing when to flip that switch or even how to transition that switch is is very challenging at times. And so I ended up writing this book about how it's really incumbent on everybody to understand that life support technology exists. And although it's meant to save your life, it can actually simply delay what should be a good and dignified death that everyone's entitled to. And it would be simple enough if I could just ask you, hey, these machines don't seem to be working. Um, You seem pretty miserable. What would you like us to do? But of course, by the time you're critically ill and attached to machines, you're you're not awake. You don't have consciousness most of the time. You're not able to contribute to that conversation. Then that conversation has to be had between your medical team and your representatives, usually your loved ones, maybe your friends, maybe your power of attorney. And those conversations are challenging and often are 
confusing for people because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what life support can and cannot offer. And so this book is meant to protect people from that confusion and protect people from ending up in a situation where they are perhaps dependent on machines or other people for everything that goes on around them. And for some people, they would be more than happy to to go through that in hopes of regaining some function. Many other people would tell me that they would have no interest in being supported by machines for the rest of their lives. And, and so this book is really about helping healthcare providers, but more helping families and patients understand what we are and are not capable of in this day and age so that people don't end up in this gray zone between alive and dead because they're tethered to machines that aren't able to make them better, but are good enough to to kind of keep them ticking along just a little bit longer. Yeah, entirely thought-provoking. I mean, in, in terms of the day and age that we're living within and technology and where it's at, you know, it, it, it creates these sort of quandaries for us to consider. And uh, Yeah, and it's only going to get worse. I mean, when I think about the technology, I mean, worse, worse and better. Technology just keeps getting better, right? So I can support your organs. I can support your lungs. I can support your heart. I can support your kidneys. I can support your bowels. I'm not very good at supporting your liver, but other than that, I'm like, the technology is there to support almost everything else. And eventually we're going to have a machine that, you know, like dialysis for your kidneys or a ventilator for your lungs. There'll be some sort of liver life support one day. And so we'll be in these positions where we can keep your organs alive. Transplant technology, the ability to take an organ out of one person and put it into another is also advancing dramatically. And so when an organ is shot, maybe we can use technology and, and surgery to, to get you a new organ. But I mean, at some point, everyone will die, right? Like that is how your life ends. It's it's the end of your life is an important part of your life. And people need to at least be aware of, of what they could be in for if they end up in an ICU. Because by the time you're there, you know, normally unexpected and tragic circumstances have felled you. And, and now it's too late for us to have those conversations with you. Well, this is a best-selling book within Canada as well, you know, for the topical matter and for the, a lot of the questions that are raised. So I certainly encourage listeners who are interested in this field to, to go grab a copy and check it out. But i got to say, Blair, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I know that listeners are really going to, you know, get a lot out of it. So thanks again for taking some time and joining the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Now, for those interested in learning more about Dr. Bigham and his work, you can do so via LinkedIn. You can also find him on Twitter, aka X, as well as Instagram. And also, too, you can check him out at LairBigham.com. And for reference, all of this information, including links to these platforms, will be included in the show notes. And hey, I mean, if you like today's show, please be sure to tell a friend and share. You can also show further support for the program by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you access your podcasts. And then also, as I mentioned at the top, head on over to YouTube. I do have that channel over there, which does host some video highlights from these conversations. And I would absolutely love a like or subscribe if you've got a second. And then finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life as a, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.